Well, Welcome to Lab Life with the Air Force Research Laboratory. Hi, I'm Michelle. And I'm Kenneth. Hello, folks. Today we are joined by Dr. Tim Bunning, the Chief Technology Officer at AFRL, who discusses his new position, the importance of materials research, and mentorship. In three, two, one. Dr. Bunning, welcome to the podcast. You can call me Tim. Well, thank you for joining us, Tim. Okay, we'll see if we can do that. Okay. All right, so starting off, we're going to kind of flip the script here. We usually ask this question at the end, but want to see how you feel now. Who would you say, or what would you say, is a piece of Air Force technology or researcher that really inspired you growing up? Can I be different? Yeah, you can. Yeah, so I'm going to tell you that the person growing up, I wanted to be a marine biologist. And so the, the scientist slash engineer who inspired me the most is, has nothing to do with the Air Force. It, it was uh, Jacques Cousteau. That's the first time we've gotten that one. Yeah. I mean, I mean, in a way, you're talking about flying underwater, so maybe it's related to aerodynamics sure, sure. or whatever. But, but he, he had such a, uh, an effect on me. I don't know if you remember, the, you're probably too young, but I mean, he used to have, there used to be TV shows, and the discovery that he did was phenomenal. But the engineering that he did early in his career in terms of enabling the whole scuba apparatus to be developed and the testing. It just fascinated me. And so I would say that's what, in a way, pushed me into science. And again, it's, it's almost this dynamic tension, if you will. If you, go, if you really go back and read about him and you really look at him, he, he had this artist's discovery flavor to him, but he also had this engineering how, how are we going to make this submersible work how are we going to you know get a better breathing apparatus to enable me to go do the former and he sort of embodied this in hindsight he sort of embodied this this dynamic tension in, a, in an individual you yeah. know? and so so looking back i always wanted to be a marine biologist uh my father he would he would say demi you don't want to become a marine biologist. You can't make any money in there. You need to become an engineer, uh, which I ultimately ended up doing. But growing up, my my passion was the ocean. To this day, even though I grew up in New England, and my wife is a massive New England Patriots fan, I am a Miami Dolphins fan <laughs> because I grew up loving the ocean. And so twice a year, there's a war that goes on during NFL season in the house. Oh, yeah. So, <laughs> so right now, you're Air Pharrell's chief technology officer. You recently came into this role, but you kind of spent a lifetime in our materials and manufacturing directorate. You, we've heard that you had literally every job there. You know, can you tell us about that? Sure. I've had almost every job. So I started there as a student and never left, I guess. I always thought I was going to leave, but uh, good people, good mission, quality of life, you know, raised my family here in Dayton. Along the way, I've been an on-site contractor there uh, for a number of years, Uh, did a lot of in-house research, so ran a large research group. Brought in a lot of people, mentored a lot of people, uh, a number of whom have joined the government and are now the next generation. Had the opportunity to run a big ATD, Advanced Technology Demonstrator Program, so experienced the 
program management aspect of, of the lab. Uh, got coerced into being a branch chief for a while. Uh, enjoyed that thoroughly. Went in kicking and screaming. Came out, you know, very, very happy I'd done it. Was, same, was same. that because of, you know, it's a different doing the science versus managing the people? or? So the question is, is why did I enjoy it, or wh- why did I go like kicking, and screaming? kicking and screaming? Because I always consider myself uh, a scientist, okay. and I loved being in the lab. I loved having working with my research group, and you know, pushing pushing the state of the art forward, and mentoring, and all that. And then you think of a branch chief job, you think of a a manager, and uh, I've never really thought of myself as a manager. I've always wanted to be thought of as a leader, and but you, you learn a lot when you go into one of those supervisory roles, uh, how, how to interact with people. Uh, you realize there's a role for everyone, and the key is, I liken it to a jigsaw puzzle where the pieces are moving, so the picture's constantly changing. A good supervisor can figure out where to move and rotate people to fit in. Uh, been a division chief, so a second level supervisor. Enjoyed that job thoroughly. Again, sort of, I don't want to say coerced, but sort of coerced into it. Uh, we were undergoing a reorg and so had a new division with, with pieces from other divisions. Uh, so I liken it to the Brady Bunch. So I really had two halves, two different cultures that came together in this wow. new division. Uh, a lot of challenges, a lot of fear, a lot of anxiety when when it happened, but did that for three and a half years and just thoroughly enjoyed, you know, building, enabling a new singular culture. Been a, what's called a CTC leader. You know, there are 40 core technology uh, competencies across the lab, so I've done that. And then, you know, my recent stint, five years as chief scientist. Uh, I have not been the director. So the SES position, although I will say that in my five years as chief scientist, I've had five directors. And so I'd like to think that I uh, was working with each one of them. And in the transition, you, you sort of pick things up as, you, as we go forward. Uh, so yeah, I've had just about every job there. Uh, I'd like to joke that I haven't been able to keep any of them and <laughs> I just keep moving on so uh, yeah well, so in this case that's a good thing absolutely yeah yeah it, g- it gives you breath uh, comes at the expense of depth never planned to do any of them you know sort of always just fell into the job it's uh, what I try to tell the younger generation these days in terms of that they're looking for the what I would call the yellow brick road. How do I get from point A to point B in the shortest period of time? And if I look back at my career, I never knew and could never say I was going to be this, I was going to be that, I was going to be this. You just sort of work hard, do high-quality work, have integrity, and opportunities will find you. I, I'm a firm believer in that rather than plotting out on some time frame that you're going to be X, Y, and Z. Because you actually started as a chemical engineer, is that correct? That's what my degrees say I am, yes. <laughs> so. what, what kind of science, when you were a little bit closer to the science, did you do in the lab? Yeah, so I would say I'm a soft matter uh, expert 
expert is probably too strong a word. So I, my background is in polymers and in liquid crystals. Uh, liquid crystals are the, the really small molecules that are in like your laptop LCD displays, liquid crystal displays. My uh, career has really been around mixing polymers, so plastics and liquid crystals in unique uh, ways to enable unique, I would say, stimuli responsive material. So materials that will respond to an electric field, materials that will respond to temperature, materials that will respond to an optical field, so a laser beam. So done a lot of what I would call structure property relationships in my career. A lot of, I wouldn't say I'm a chemist, but a lot of formulating of systems and then doing the optical and solid state characterization using things like microscopy, electron microscopy, etc. So what is electron microscopy? I can't say it. <laughs> electron. So instead of using photons to image, you use electrons to image. There's various classes. Uh, it, essentially, it allows you to look at things at a much smaller scale. That is very uh, So you, know, you can get down into the nanometer resolution, so atomic by atomic. But... Uh, so yeah, my the bulk of my career has been spent. Uh, we had a great group of people. We had a solid state physicist. We had a photochemist. We had a, for lack of a better term, an optical engineer. And then I was the materials guy that went and took what we made in the lab and tried to figure out what we had made uh, from a physical perspective. So going back to when you were in school then, um, I know you mentioned you started here as a student. Yes. Uh, was your plan always to work with materials in the Air Force, or what was your aspiration back then? No, uh, I was lucky my Ph.D. research was funded by an AFOSR fellowship, the three-year fellowship. I was lucky enough to be awarded one. One year, they, they awarded 25 a year back then. And as part of that, I had a sponsoring lab. So I was in the University of Connecticut. So I had a sponsoring lab. The sponsoring lab was the materials laboratory, materials directorate. So I came out one, and as part of the agreement, you had to come out and spend one summer with your, your sponsoring lab. So I came out one summer and just really hit it off with the group. Most students, after their eight or ten week summer went back to their university and that was really the extent of their relationship with the Air Force. But I hit it off well so I came out a second summer and then during that second summer they said hey if you want to come and actually once your classwork is done do your research here as part of the larger group as we try to build out this area we would be more than willing to, you know, host you. And I thought it was a great opportunity. Definitely. And so I moved out here with my wife in January of 1990. So it's been almost 30 years to the month that I left the materials lab and came down here. Uh, so, yeah, I spent two and a half years as a student mm -hmm. in the lab. Ironically, my major professor at the University of Connecticut 
at the same time I came out here, he left Connecticut and went to the University of North Carolina. So I was going back and forth from here to North Carolina to learn the skills that I needed to do my PhD research. But in the end, because I was a student at the University of Connecticut and he was still affiliated with Connecticut, my I had to go back and defend as part of the chemical engineering faculty, you know, process at the University of Connecticut. So it was a weird a weird triangle. Yeah, I was gonna say a lot, a lot of travel there. Yeah. <laughs> it kept so, it fun. So what kind of drew you back or staying with us for two and a half years then, like staying here at the lab? I just thought it was a great opportunity. Uh, the lab has phenomenal people, has phenomenal access to equipment. Uh, the group that I was joining was uh, undergoing a renaissance, if you will. They were sort of uh, coming out of doing a lot of work behind closed doors, and so they were. There was a, there was a appetite there of wanting to lean forward. Uh, innovate, etc. And I figured, you know, it would be a great place to experience something different than, you know, the. I my master's degree is from Connecticut, so I figured this was a great opportunity to experience something different, which is what part of the PhD process should be, you know, is a, a go and experience a, a different culture, a different school, a different uh, environment, if you will. So. So I figured I could get that whilst getting my degree from Connecticut, but I would just get it here with an AFL. Yeah, it all worked out. Yeah. So in that 30 years with, with AFL yeah. so far from you know, 1990 to now, what, what, makes, what me, makes me feel old. Yeah, I mean, <laughs> Kenneth is actually younger than that. So. Yeah. Oh, you're killing me. <laughs> My apologies. Well, yeah, that's good. You probably thought Barney was cool or something. Right. <laughs> <laughs> um, but, you know, so 30 years, a lot of time, a lot of pop culture, too, right? Mm -hmm. But uh, what are some of those outstanding accomplishments that, like, stick out in your mind? Or just, like, I don't know if there's some crazy cool science or, you know, 30 years is a long time. It's a long time maybe not for, you know, basic research to develop, but, you know, some, uh, you know, nearer-term stuff. Yeah. Uh, I would say, I mean, we can talk about the science all you want. Uh, you know, I've... I've been very fortunate in my career to be part of some very high-performing teams, which over the years has led to my fair share of recognition, uh, all because of them, not because of me. But I would say the thing that I'm most, uh, I don't know, proud of or I think of as my accomplishment is the group of people that I brought in and mentored uh, that have now joined the government and are now the next generation. When I look back and think of what's my legacy, we can talk about this piece of hardware or this science, but to me that's what makes me smile inside, I guess. So, um, had great people who've wanted to, why I don't know, wanted to come here and join the group back when I had the group and uh, they are you know they're a number of them in RX couple on SDPE right now uh, just just phenomenal the, the talent level that they bring to the organization greatly usurps 
my talent level. So from my perspective, it's the it's what I've given back to the war. That's not quite the answer I think you were looking for, but I think that's... Yeah, that's it, a, it's an answer. It's the accomplishments of those people, and hopefully you empowered them along your way. I mean, you're being humble now, but uh, the, no, that makes sense um, completely. There, I mean, I have lots of what you would call the typical academic narcissistic accomplishments that a scientist like if you went and polled a professor you know they would talk about what fellows they are and how many papers they have and the age index that they have and patents I mean I have all of that but that's not what excites me that's not that's not what I think we're here for I think that's in academia that's that's the end you know that's that's who that's what enables you to get funding that's what enables you to get students the students enable more results which allow you to get more funding it's it's the hamster wheel i believe in the government we do it and we want our SNEs to do it as a means to an end because you want them to have that outside reputation that peer practitioner i call it you you want them to have those credentials, but it's not for themselves. It's it's to enable the Air Force to leverage the larger scientific community to to be an amplifier, if you will. Because it's not just what we're doing here. It's it's the, the connections. We're part of a large ecosystem, a very large ecosystem, uh, particularly from the basic and early applied uh, part of the enterprise. You know academia, industry, international partners. Uh, and, you know, you influence one of two ways, in my opinion. You walk in the room and you have a checkbook. And we do a lot of that influence in AFRL because we have a pretty large budget. But I've always thought of my job as growing people and growing teams so that when they walk in the room without the checkbook, they are still listened to. They are, because they have that peer reputation, they can influence the direction of a room without just being able to cut a check. And I think that's influence, in my opinion. Absolutely. Yeah, it's important very much to enrich minds no matter where they go. Like you mentioned, they have that expertise that can really help keep us pushing forward. Yeah. So with that in mind, um, with your career and how, how you started as a student, came to here, um, I know we had a, a discussion prior to this talking about mentorship. It's very important yeah. in your position, and I know we've talked about it already, but what are some of the mentors who have influenced you throughout your career? Yeah, I've had a number of great ones. Um, uh, four come to mind. Uh, the first being the former chief scientist of the materials lab, Wade Adams. Uh, he... He wasn't the chief scientist when I first met him. I was showed up as a student. Uh, but he helped me tremendously in the first 10 years of my career to learn how to be a, a, a practitioner in the outside community, how to publish, how to present, how to, how to interact, how to build that reputation, if you will. Just, just pushed me very hard. Uh, which I'm very thankful for. He, he had a saying which I use with all of my folks, which makes 
some leaders cringe, but I believe it's what we should be as leaders. And he said, never ask permission, just ask forgiveness. That's your job as a scientist is to go do. Now, obviously, safety is important, but always lean forward. Always uh, you know, push the limits, you know, uh, strategic risk-taking, et cetera. And, and, and I learned that from him and have tried to embody that in my mentoring of of the next the next generation and um, you know AFRL the Air Force we are a pretty risk adverse uh, a pretty risk adverse environment and so I think it's important for our people to know that they have leaders that have their back go do good things you shall get all the credit if it goes wrong then I will take the heat as as a as, as your immediate supervisor your boss your mentor your research leader, whatever whatever the role may be. And so I've always tried to do that. So so Wade was, you know, who I would say I became who I am uh, in large part due to Wade. Uh, had a couple of others uh, through the years. My, one of my early branch chiefs, uh, Pam Schaefer, still an RX, uh, just tremendous attention to detail. Didn't take anything for granted. Crossed every... T dotted every I, and I learned from that the importance of, of attention to detail, you know, and there are things that you just take time to deal with, and you gotta, you gotta do it right, rightly so, and I used to drive her nuts, I think, when I was uh, working for her, but she had tremendous patience, and uh, empowered and enabled me, and watching from afar, just learn that attention to detail. Had a former division chief, Bill Woody. Uh, he retired, since retired. Just, I would say I learned from him the power of just enthusiasm, true enthusiasm. He was just constantly positive. And uh, I think too many of our leaders today, the only power they have is to say no. He was always the guy that said yes. And I think we need more of that. Definitely. You you enable people. You say yes. Your job as a leader is to say yes to them, not to say no. Uh, and so I learned that from him. And then uh, the fourth is is Chris Ristich, uh, who's still around, head of SDPE, the former s- section chief of mine. And uh, learned the power of communication with him. You know, as a scientist, you think you know how to communicate. And, you, you know, there's this mindset you go to when you go to an ACS or an APS or an MSS meeting. But, but we live in a pretty diverse ecosystem. And the ability to communicate, to understand who you're communicating to, and then to tailor the message to your audience is a skill that uh, I wouldn't say I'm, I'm good at, but I, I tried to learn from Chris because uh, he was just very, very good at it. And it's something as the chief scientist of RX, I really pushed our folks as to know your audience, learn how to message, keep it simple. Tried to do this in several of our SAB cycles, you know, because we immediately want to get into the weeds and we immediately want to start talking about the details. And yeah. Yeah, they, they don't have the depth. And so you really need to, you know, 
understand your audience, and then work the message. And so, so those four people, I would say, influence me, you know, early my, in my formidable stages. Um, still have mentors today, you know, still have people I look up to. Uh, I don't think mentoring is something you, you should ever think of stopping, right? I mean, like, always have stuff to learn, and there's always people who do things better than you, and, you know, try to, try to surround yourself with those that are better than you and learn from them, so, but yeah, I think mentoring is very, very important, particularly early part of your career, really shape who you become. So with that in mind then, let's say some of these, um, the young workers coming in or the next generation are looking to be leaders and really push, push things to the lab. What advice would you have for them starting off? Yeah, this gets back to the yellow brick road question, you know. I have no qualms in people wanting to be leaders and feeling that they can be leaders, but I think we need, there's also goodness in being a good teammate. Mm-hmm. Uh, so I would say become part of a team and whether you're leading it or not, that's where you should do high quality work, be a great teammate, lean forward, take advantage of opportunities, and the leadership opportunities will come from that. I think we need to continually remind our folks that that's, like it goes back to what I said earlier, I, I never aspired to any of the leadership positions I've ever been in, it was just by doing good work, being in the right place at the right time, the opportunities presented themselves. Uh, and I think, I think we, need to, we need to continually emphasize the value of teamwork and not just the leading of teams, but that being a contributing member of a team is just as important, if not more important, uh, and the results of that team is what is what is what should be driving you. Uh, I get we're all human. I get we're all we all worry about you know we're competitive. I mean we're it's a human trait, uh, you know. But I think I think if you do the team part, the leadership opportunities will come. I think coming in and saying I want to be a ranch chief. There's lots of opportunities to go take leadership classes, etc. But I think I would like to see a little more patience in the development of some of our folks before they they self-anoint themselves as I will be a future leader. You know, I think it's just, you got to let it come. Yeah, no, it's very much living in the moment too, because you're right. We're always looking out toward the horizon, looking ahead, but it's great to say, hey, I've got a great team here and we're doing amazing work. Like, yeah. Let's focus on this and you're right. This is why I never left. I always said I was going to go to academia, but I was just part of this amazing team. You know, 10 years later, I was still here, and then by then I had, had a family, and we were raising kids, and <clears throat> it's a great place to raise a family, and then these other opportunities came came along, you know, so, you know, have patience, I would say. That's great. And then in your new role as part of the, the AFRL team, what excites yeah. you about being Chief Technology Officer? Uh, that's a great question. I've been down here for a week. Uh, I would say I'm still trying to figure out what the role should be. I think the role was something a couple of years ago. AFRO was a little bit of a different place before 2030. I think we've been in this transition period. So part of, part of my first uh, month or two is to 
figure that out is, you know, what the role should be. I know there are a couple things I want to focus on. Uh, one is I want to be, I want to be the voice of the SNE within the organization through the TD, through their chief scientists. We are primarily, yes, we're a military org, but we are an SNE org as well. And so I want to be their CTO. I want to work for them. I want to do everything I can from a workforce development perspective. I want to do everything I can to open doors for them. I still consider myself a practitioner. I'm still publishing. I'm still going to technical meetings. So I, I want to feel like the SNEs know they have a corporate voice. I think that's been missing a little bit through this rotation. Um, I want to bring some tech rigor back to the development and assessments of some of our enterprise level programs. I, I think it's a mistake if those that are doing the execution are also doing the evaluation. It's, uh, it's not what S&T is built on. S&T is built on independent uh, peer review. And I think we need some of that in our, particularly our enterprise level programs. Uh, want to engage strongly with the S&T implementation team. Uh, both Objective 1 and Objective 3, I think there's a role for this office to play. Uh, and so I've had several discussions with Mr. Sekulich, and you know, we'll continue to work that. Yeah, for our listeners, that's the Air Force Science and Technology Strategy um, that was released last April. Correct. Um, and then the last thing is, I, I think my role is to be an ambassador. So... Interfacing with the Magcoms, interfacing with AFWIC, uh, interfacing with industry, interfacing with academia. So I have a whole series of things, what I would call them immersions, and I'm in the process of trying to set up to go and let them know that there's a CTO, a permanent CTO on board. I'm here to help. I'm here to, you know, be the S&T face for the org. Uh, I generated a priority list. I've sent it to Mr. Blackhurst, our executive director. I've sent it to General Dertine. The three of us will sit down and look at that. There's probably enough work for five people on the priority list. And so, you know, what I really want to do is sync up with them and make sure the higher headquarters here that we are all working to the same sheet of music and we, you know, our priorities are, are straight. I haven't done that yet, but uh, that's, that's my goal is to, to facilitate that. So, so to go back to the, how you ask the question, I think the thing that really excites me is just to be the ambassadors for the SNEs. Our SNEs do great things every day. Uh, we have some phenomenally talented people working on some things that are very Air Force unique that cannot be done elsewhere. And I think, uh, due to no fault of theirs, we're in this churn with the pivot to a different fight. The Army is in this churn. The Navy is in this churn. The Air Force is no different. And I believe our SNEs feel a little bit uh, under attack. And so my message is to say, keep doing great stuff. Let's figure out how we do even greater stuff, albeit slightly different for the future. And so I'm really excited to go work with them to 
facilitate that. And a question I want to ask as well, kind of tying a lot of this together. So something you mentioned to us that kind of um, interested me was this term dynamic tension, especially in terms of leadership. So mm -hmm. how does that kind of tie all this together with setting a new position, mentorship, all of it? Yeah, so to me that refers to this balance between you you can you can use different comparisons but uh, in-house research and program management uh, tech push and tech pull uh, six one early six two versus six three there's a book I read called loom shots and they use this term <clears throat> called dynamic tension. In the book, they compare artists, artist communities with soldiers and, and talk about a variety of organizations, some that have failed, some that have succeeded. And, and the ones that have succeeded have gotten this dynamic tension right between the artists and the soldiers. It's not all one or all the other. And I grew up in RX in a group with Chris Ristich and Bill Woody and Pam Schaefer and Wade Adams in a group that had a very strong in-house science base but had a very strong 6-3 tech program focus. And we were constantly fighting with each other. You know, the, what you guys are working on will never work. It's pie in the sky. You know, that's 6-3 talking to the 6-2. And that six one and six two people saying that what you're doing is evolutionary. By the time you get it to work, the, the whole system's going to be changed, and you're going to need something completely different. And we used to have some, you know, not literally, but figuratively, some smackdown fights, you know. But that tension, what I call dynamic tension, I think is what made the group very very strong. If you look who's come out of that group in terms of AFRL leadership. It's amazing. And so I respect that dynamic tension. Uh, and that's what I want to bring to this role. I believe this role is S&T of AFRL. It's not the in-house component. Uh, I really want to do a, really want to focus on building a relationship with EN, our engineering shop. I don't want it to be CZ and EN. I, we, we should be representing the S&T through the continuum together. And so that's what I mean by dynamic tension. It's important. It has that almost crucible setting where you're right. Like really you understand more of the programs because you're helping argue for one side or the other or yeah. caught in it. So I mean, I'm, I have an academic narcissist CV, which is based on some would say science, but I'm an engineer by training. You know, I want to solve problems. And I think, I think, uh, and we do both phenomenally well in this organization, but I, I see all too often, well, that's, that's program management. That, that's a contract with, well, you know, you have to be technically smart to run, you know, a large 6-3 effort properly. Mm -hmm. and just because they're not in the lab tweaking knobs doesn't mean they're any less technically savvy than the persons who are, and vice versa. And so I think I, I want to really try to see... Um, more homogeneity in how we describe things. Uh, and I would recommend anyone to read that book, Moonshots. It's a great book. 
Well, thanks for joining us. Thank you so much. Appreciate you giving me the opportunity. Make sure to follow us on social media at Facebook, Twitter, LinkedIn, Instagram, and YouTube at AF Research Lab. And remember, stay curious. Logging off.